Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.25, The End of Civil Government. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the First Continental Congress. Before we had actually gotten into the Congress itself, though, we had started talking about events in Boston, where, beginning in August, we begin to see the meaningful breakdown of the government. We had touched on that theme. However, we paused it right at the same time that the Congress began their meeting in Philadelphia. During the Congress, however, we saw that events back in Massachusetts were very much helping to drive the narrative. This was most specifically seen in those rumors of bloodshed in early September, and then the delivery of the Suffolk Resolves, delivered by Paul Revere, just a few weeks later. At the time, I wanted to keep the focus in Pennsylvania, so I declined to actually elaborate on what was going on back in Massachusetts. Well, here we are, it is the next episode, and that is indeed the plan for today. We are going to head back to Massachusetts and find out exactly what was going on there, as everything was beginning to come undone at the seams. By the end of the episode today, we will have this episode and our last episode in roughly the same place, the end of the Congress. With the two episodes aligned, we can march forward together. Since the Boston Tea Party, it had become difficult to control the people in Massachusetts. There was an undeniable increase in unrest, something which got worse moving towards the end of the summer of 1774. We have talked about the fact that even as Governor Thomas Gage was attempting to flex his newfound powers, he was still being undercut at every point. Recall his initial relief that the Assembly was working with him so well, right up until the moment that he learned that they were holding secret meetings to make plans for the upcoming Congress in Philadelphia. As we had discussed last time, following the arrival of the government and the Justice Act on August the 6th, things became even worse. By the end of the month, Bostonians had managed to cripple the court system and were busy conducting a campaign of harassment against would-be members of Gage's council. Almost from the very beginning, ominous signs out of Massachusetts helped to define the direction of the Continental Congress. On September 6, literally the first full day of the Congress, news came into Philadelphia that six men were dead following an engagement with the British troops over gunpowder. The news included that Boston was now being shelled by a British man of war just off the coast. This momentary call to action was critical, although ultimately it was a false alarm, as it showed that there was at least an acceptance from the other colonies that the possibility of a looming war was real enough. None of the delegations in Philadelphia packed it up to head home when learning about the potential outbreak of violence. Well, for some like John Adams, this was a reassuring sign. It also tells us a lot about the state of affairs in Boston itself. Some 48 hours or so after the news of the attack on Boston reached Philadelphia, more accurate news came in declaring that the entire thing had just been a rumor. However, 
consider for just a moment that the story was generally not in dispute. It is not as though people thought that the idea of violence in Boston was all that sensational or unexpected. As it turns out, conditions in Boston, and indeed throughout all of Massachusetts, were becoming increasingly tenuous. By the beginning of that September, British troops were landing in the colony and were taking up positions in Boston Common, where they found themselves sleeping in tents. In all, four regiments had made their way into Boston, the same number that had been there prior to the Boston Massacre. As troops were arriving and conditions were clearly worsening, a major concern for Gage was the real possibility that violence was imminent. In this belief, Gage was working with evidence that this outcome was a distinct possibility. Boston was, after all, no stranger to violence. There were riots following the Stamp Act, after the seizure of the Liberty, and in the run-up to the Boston Massacre just a few years earlier. It was not out of the question that another such outbreak of violence could occur. Thomas Gage was obviously very well aware of what had been going on in Boston for years now. He had been the North American military commander for well over a decade, ever since Amherst was recalled during Pontiac's rebellion. Gage had no interest in light policies or pacification, however. London had grown tired of the colonists, and the name of the game in 1774 was snuffing out the rabble once and for all. The coercive acts were meant to be punitive, and Gage was determined not to give an inch to the Americans. Now, as the governor of Massachusetts, Gage had been dealing since his arrival in June with colonists openly interfering with his policies. We have talked before about the colonists bullying potential council members into refusing their appointments, and in some cases, shooting out the windows of said potential appointees to ensure that they would decline the new job opportunity. The campaign of intimidation, well, certainly annoying for Gage, also was informing him of just how quickly things could go sideways. Gage was quickly figuring out that the unrest was not just isolated to Boston either. Even in Salem, where the general court had been moved to in order to get it outside of the seemingly more radical Boston, Gage was finding resistance to be commonplace. Therefore, it is not just Boston, but rather the whole of Massachusetts, that had become a tinderbox, ready for a spark that would launch everything into chaos. More literally, what Gage was really worried about was that spark hitting the large amount of gunpowder that was under the control of the Americans. As the colonists did their best to intimidate the would-be members of Gage's council from joining up, it had become a disturbingly common event for firearms to be used. From shooting out windows to just firing off rounds into the air as a means of intimidation, it really brought front and center just how much things were teetering on the edge. It would not take much to push them over and Gage wanted to get out ahead of it. The colonists were also able to sense the coming threats, and they quickly figured out that their gunpowder and arms would be a prime target of Gage and the British. Throughout central Massachusetts, there was open threats of violence going into the final weeks of August. In Worcester, there were open threats of resistance through arms, 
and Gage was having to seriously consider sending in troops to attempt to regain control. During our last episode, we had talked about the men arrested in Salem under Gage's orders for attending an illegal meeting. Gage would only back down and release the men under the very real threat of the militia mustering and marching on Salem to free the men themselves. This likewise was enough to convince Gage that Boston may well be the most controllable city in Massachusetts at that time, and thereafter moved the government right back to the city. The rumors that had reached the Continental Congress, those rumors about a general outbreak of violence, stemmed from an incident that would become known as the Powder Alarm, an incident that began on August 31st. Shortly before, Gage had received a letter from William Brattle. Brattle was a longtime general in the Massachusetts militia, who had at one point found himself aligned with the American cause. However, much had changed since the Stamp Act, and Brattle now found himself on the other side of the debate. Brattle gave Gage a warning, that he might want to be aware, that the powder in the city may, you know, mysteriously disappear. Gage, not wishing to ignore the obvious hint, decided that he was going to relocate the powder from its current location in the stone arsenal upon Quarry Hill in Charlestown to the more secure arsenal at Castle William. To take on this task, Gage sent David Phipps to move the powder. On August the 31st, Phipps went to Brattle, who handed over the keys to the arsenal. The next morning, Phipps and his men set to the task of emptying out the Quarry Hill Tower. Everything went smoothly, and by lunch the powder and a few cannons had been removed and were on their way to the safety of Castle William. Although the mission had gone down with only some minimal grumbling, the situation would soon begin to rapidly spiral out of control. The removal of the powder had seriously spooked the Americans. The British had been taking a far more hardline approach for months. There were British regulars throughout Massachusetts, and ships of war now sat in the harbor. And now, large amounts of gunpowder were on the move? Clearly, the British were getting ready to undertake a major military operation and crush colonial resistance once and for all. In a stroke of bad luck, right at the same time that this was all going on, that letter from Brattle to Gage had managed to leak out and was very quickly spreading throughout Boston and beyond. Brattle, upon learning of the leak, made the probably wise decision to remove himself to Boston Common and the protection of the British troops. As crowds began to gather to confront both Brattle and Attorney General Jonathan Sewell, they were enraged to see that both men had already slipped away. At Sewell's house, the situation became quite serious when the crowd refused to believe his wife's assertion that her husband had left. They ended up busting down the door, searching for him by themselves, while all the meantime, breaking windows and causing general havoc. The situation very nearly spiraled out of control when one of the people in the house, the tutor of the family's children, ended up firing a shot towards the crowd. Although this did manage to get everybody to disperse, things could have very easily gone the other way. The morning after the incident at Sewell's house, several things were happening. 
First, the Boston press did not care for the story of an angry mob ransacking a house and played the entire situation off as being nothing more than a group of Negroes and boys. The press was very conscious by this point of the optics surrounding the imperial crisis and had grown quite good at spinning a story. Remember that going all the way back to 1765 and the Stamp Act. During those riots, there had been a push to avoid unorganized mob action, although that did not always prove to be successful. The local press had become very adept at driving the narrative. In his fantastic book, The Road to Concord, which has incidentally been a fantastic tool for me these last few episodes, historian J.L. Bell points out the racial undertones present as well, stating that this was a common way that the Whig press tried to absolve the white men of Massachusetts from blame for any unreasonable violence. More importantly than the actual seizure of the powder from Quarry Hill, or any of the gatherings of the night before, was the fact that the rumor mill was now fully engaged. In terms of crises that we have talked about in the last 25 episodes, the powder alarm on its face really isn't that exciting. The issue, however, is that once the story got out into the ether, it took on a complete life of its own. This puts everybody on edge as the tales of a confrontation between the British and the Americans grew. As that story grew, so did the very real fear amongst the Americans of a looming war. The version of the story that became most accepted and indeed the version that would reach the Continental Congress just a few days later, was of six being killed during the seizure, and Boston now being under British bombardment. As this information spread, men throughout the colony began mobilizing as militia companies prepared for what seemed like a now inevitable confrontation. Those coming out at this point were no longer the Boston Radicals, but rather ordinary citizens from all throughout central Massachusetts. In something of an ironic twist, by September, Boston had become something of a refuge for loyalists within the colony. The warships in the harbor and the troops in the common meant that it was easily the most secure city in the entire colony. However, although Gage had control over Boston itself, he struggled to control the situation outside of the colony's main city. He wrote back to London on August the 31st, at the same time that the powder was being removed from Quarry Hill, that civil government in the colony was at an end. Historian Gary Nash states in his classic work, The Unknown American Revolutionary, that Boston had been the fulcrum of revolutionary radicalism for 10 years since the Stamp Act crisis. But now it was the farmer's radicalism that pushed Massachusetts to the brink of open war. The powder alarm must have filled Thomas Gage with the utmost of dread. Sure, Boston was tightly checked at the moment. However, this most recent incident had shown just how quickly the colonists could mobilize, and served to remind Gage that, although his redcoats certainly were the more skilled soldiers as compared to the backcountry farmers, there were a whole lot more backcountry farmers than there were British redcoats. Externally, the news of the situation in Boston 
rocked the Continental Congress when it arrived on September the 6th. We talked last time about the state of confusion that the Congress was immediately plunged into, as they tried to figure out first what was happening in Boston, and second, should something have indeed happened, what was the response going to be? Upon first learning of the rumors coming out of Boston, John Adams wrote in his diary, went to Congress again, received by express an intimidation of the bombardment of Boston. A confused account, but an alarming one indeed. God grant it may not be found true. Adams clearly did have his doubts as to the veracity of the story, although was still obviously concerned at what he was hearing. It clearly was not so outlandish a story that Adams could outright dismiss it. The same day in his notes from the Congress itself, Adams mentions a speech from Patrick Henry, where he laid out the dire nature of things, pointing out that there are now armies in the colonies, and that government is dissolved. Henry follows by stating, The distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. I am not a Virginian, but an American. This is the state of where the Congress was when those rumors hit Philadelphia that very same day. In a group where rumblings of conflict were present, the news of the shelling of Boston fit snugly into the delegates' fears. On September 8th, John Adams wrote to Abigail. He opens the letter by saying, When or where this letter will find you, I know not. In what scenes of distress and terror, I cannot foresee. We have received a confused account from Boston of a dreadful catastrophe. The particulars we have not heard. We are waiting with the utmost anxiety and impatience for further intelligence. The effect of the news we have both upon the Congress and the inhabitants of this city was very great, great indeed. Every gentleman seems to consider the bombardment of Boston as the bombardment of the capital of his own province. Our deliberations are grave and serious indeed. Now, Adams would learn later that same day that ultimately nobody had been killed and that Boston was not under bombardment. However, again here Adams gives us a glimpse into the effect that the news had on the Congress, describing it as being very great indeed. He likewise mentions that people took the rumored attack on Boston as an attack against all of the colonies. The mind frame and what we have seen from men like Patrick Henry are critical because although the powder alarm did not end up being the moment that war broke out, that moment was looming just some seven months in the future. Although news of the powder alarm had sent shockwaves through the Congress, it was not the only event in Massachusetts that would elicit such a reaction. Just weeks later, the Congress would be forced to grapple with the Suffolk Resolves, as again, events in Massachusetts would help to drive the events going on at the Continental Congress to its south. Back in Massachusetts, the powder alarm had caused not just anxiety, but the mobilization of militia units as they prepared for a confrontation. Although that confrontation would not end up coming in early September 1774, that did not mean that these units happily went back home. 
In fact, in the coming weeks, civil government would continue to break down, which would have profound effects both in Massachusetts itself as well as with the Congress in Philadelphia. On September 6, the day that Adams and company down in Philadelphia heard the rumors of Boston being shelled, some 4,000 militiamen poured into Worcester County to shut down the local courts. Interference with the courts had been going on for weeks, and throughout Massachusetts, the courts had largely ground to a halt. In Worcester, the militia entered the town, forced the local judges and imperial officers to take a humiliating march out of town, and thus seized control of the town's government. From this point forward, colonists throughout central Massachusetts increasingly began the process of replacing royal government with their own local systems. Imperial control over much of Massachusetts, outside of Boston, was slipping away. However, nobody had any interest in things descending into lawlessness. The entire point of this was not to usher in a reign of anarchy, but rather was to change who was calling the shots, shifting away from the imperial apparatus and towards local autonomy. Local committees of correspondence, recognizing what was happening, held local conventions to ensure a smooth transition of power from imperial to local control. These were held all throughout the colony throughout September, in places like Worcester, where imperial control was clearly at an end, following the removal of the judges and officials on September the 6th. As though September 6th was not a busy enough day already, this is also the same date that a convention began in Suffolk County that would have wide-ranging impacts both locally as well as down in Philadelphia. We know from last time that the convention in Suffolk would present what would become known as the Suffolk Resolves. These resolves began with a scathing rebuke of Britain itself, stating that their ancestors had come to America because the crown had essentially given them no choice in the matter. The pilgrims aside, recall that many of those who ended up coming over did so during the 1730s, during the Great Puritan Migration, as a result of the repressive policies of Charles I and his minister William Laud. We talked extensively about this some hundred episodes ago, back in episodes 1.20 and 1.21. Although the results did pay lip service to George III, really, it was no more than just mere lip service at this point. The convention in Suffolk openly professed allegiance to the king, however only insofar as to state that they will not agree to become slaves for anybody, including his majesty. They likewise would openly question how George III would find himself in this position of being aligned against colonial interests, concluding that it must be the evil ministers that he was surrounding himself with. Though they continue to profess their desire to restore harmony and normalize relations, they also want it to be abundantly clear to everybody that normalization of relations is going to be on their terms. The Americans likewise would make a callback to the original charter, the one that was revoked all those years before with the creation of the Dominion of New England. The colonists argued that the revocation of that charter had been illegal when it occurred. However, assured everybody 
that they would not make a big deal about that. Again, assuming that those back in London get on board with their program. Until such time that good relations were restored and the coercive acts were repealed, a boycott would be the name of the game. The most radical part coming out of the resolves came in those declarations, which were formed in meetings that had been outright prohibited by the imperial government. The colonists making clear that they were going to continue to meet, regardless of how London felt on the matter. And second, stating that anybody acting to deny them of their constitutional right was a traitor to their country, regardless of where they were born. The convention does not mince words here either. Those imperial officials who were acting in such a way to deny the colonists what they believed to be their natural rights would not only be found to have no authority whatsoever, but further, they would be brought to trial on those charges as quickly as possible. The Suffolk Resolves were a clear declaration that, at least in Suffolk County, independence had arrived. Yes, there was still that lip service to the Crown. However, the Resolves essentially lay out that such loyalty only extends so far as their demands are met. Imperial officials acting against the constitutional rights of the people would be considered treasonous, their authority ignored. The message was clear. If the British did not repeal the coercive acts and back down from their position, there was to be a complete and total boycott. This was yet another escalation that, when it reached Philadelphia, would completely change the direction of the Congress. The radical nature of the resolves, and the fact that the Suffolk County Convention reached out to the Congress for their opinion, managed to break the deadlock that they had formed. This was a strong enough statement that it forced everybody off of the fence and made them pick sides. The resolves also tell us a lot about what the colonists inside of Suffolk County were thinking about. There was a concern in the resolves for maintaining the public order, encouraging people not to riot or attack personal property. Sure, imperial control was melting away, but this was not meant to be a lawless action. They were not interested in throwing off the government. They were interested in replacing the government. To repeat my quote from historian John Farrelling from our last episode, the Suffolk Resolves represented a declaration of non-allegiance towards the royal government in Massachusetts. Joseph Palmer wrote to John Adams on September 14th about the incoming resolves. Palmer stated that the province seemed ripe for a more popular government. He likewise mentioned that this feeling was at least somewhat unanimous, mentioning the distinct lack of Tories, who would soon become labeled as loyalists, or even people neutral to the subject in the colony. Although Palmer may have exaggerated some about the universal acceptance of the Suffolk Resolves, it is probably not that huge of an overstatement. In this letter, Palmer mentions that they were holding off from doing anything until they heard back from the Congress as to whether or not the resolves should be pushed through. In response back to Palmer shortly after, Adams rants about his frustrations at the Congress for not immediately approving the resolves. 
Adams would likewise write to William Tudor around the same time, where he discussed military matters. A good hint that Adams by this point saw the writing on the wall. Adams mentions in that letter that despite Gage's claims that everything that he was doing was defensive in nature, any misstep would inevitably lead to a civil war. From these letters both to and from John Adams, we can learn much about the status of things in the middle of September. There are statements from Palmer about the growing movement and agitation in Boston. Perhaps, however, more telling is the comments from Adams, stemming both from his frustration towards the Congress and his realization of what a tinderbox Massachusetts had become. By the time that the Congress began, Adams was clearly worried about a coming war, something that would remain on his mind throughout the entire proceeding. We must also remember that Adams writes this just a week or so following the powder alarm, when the information that reached him was that war had actually broken out back at home. There is no vagueness from Adams about his personal point of support either. In his response back to Palmer, he makes open his annoyance over the delay in supporting the Suffolk Resolves. Despite the frustration of Adams, the debates would ultimately prove fruitful, and the Resolves would be adopted. The Congress still did advise Suffolk County to proceed with caution. Most, though not all, were not interested in launching a preemptive war with the British. Although we know that these debates did exist over the Resolves, Adams and others tell us as much, the decision to keep the proceedings secret unfortunately means that much of the detail in these debates has been lost to time. The Resolves were, without question, as radical a declaration as we have yet seen. Though we know that they were adopted in the end, after considerable debate, we know little else of what that debate actually looked like. Despite those warnings, to avoid unnecessary escalation, the resolves, along with a letter of sympathy, were published in the Pennsylvania packet. That letter published along with the resolves declared that should hostilities break out, all of the colonies should stand united in defense of each other. It was a bold declaration of the Congress and marks a clearly growing relationship between the colonies as they begin acting increasingly as a united front. These newfound bonds and agreements to stand with each other came at the detriment of their relationship with Great Britain. The decision to ratify the Suffolk Resolves was a major turning point for the Continental Congress. Many of the more moderate and conservative members recognized that such actions could be seen as tantamount to a declaration of war. The Continental Congress, something that would already have been viewed in London as being radical by its very existence alone, found itself in the position of approving a document that sought to completely upend the existing relationship between the Crown and her colonies. The resolves pushed everybody off of the fence and forced the delegates to take a side. For the reasons that we discussed last week, this would prove to be the impetus for the radicals to control the direction of the remainder of the Congress. Through the end of the summer and into the fall of 1774, 
significant changes came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. When Thomas Gage was lamenting over the collapse of civil government at the end of August, I would argue that he had it all wrong. It was not the end of civil government in Massachusetts. Rather, it was the collapse of imperial rule in that colony. Massachusetts did not descend into a lawless state. Governance did not cease to exist. Rather, those who were now in control of the government of the colony were no longer the British officials, but instead, it was the colonists themselves. As historian Gary Nash puts it when talking about the overthrow of Wooster County, nearly the entire male population of Wooster County had toppled British rule, so far as their own affairs were concerned, and put in its place what amounted to the People's Republic of Wooster County. This also ties back into something that we talked about in episode 4.19. During that episode, I talked about when independence became inevitable in the colonies. The answer was that there was no clear answer. Of course, the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776 is a pretty clear point where everybody was more or less on board. However, each colony had to come to the conclusion on its own in their own time, that independence was something that they were seeking. The answer to that question in Massachusetts is that during the late summer and early autumn of 1774, the colony, county by county, made that determination. The movement came not just from the top down, but rather from the bottom up. It was not the Bostonians who were driving the events. Boston was, for the time being, about the only thing that Gage did control in Massachusetts. Rather, this was a movement of farmers and artisans out in the country that would finally break from imperial control. There would, of course, continue to be artful polemics being produced by the intelligentsia of the movement. These men are always going to remain at the forefront of events, as we march forward into the revolution. However, the truth will always remain that had the artisans and the rural farmers, not themselves, been stretched thin and hampered by British imperial policy with grievances over their treatment, the revolution would never have been possible. Despite differences that might have existed between the urban population and the rural population, everybody in Massachusetts was affected by the coercive acts. Systems that had been in place for generations were suddenly upturned and disrupted. The threats posed by British soldiers was very real throughout the entire colony. These disruptions sent concussive waves throughout all classes and segments of society and would help to explain the widespread escalation of events in Massachusetts. We are going to spend a lot of time in the weeks to come, as we make our final push towards the outbreak of the war, looking not just at the top of the revolutionary pyramid that drove the events and generally gets remembered as the Founding Fathers, but also at the vast base of that same pyramid. The men and women for whom their support and participation was a prerequisite to there being any hope of a successful outcome. Massachusetts was likewise well-situated 
for the possibility of such a rebellion to come. The extensive militia networks that existed throughout the colony, companies that had existed to protect the often vulnerable frontiers in Massachusetts, and to lead offensive missions up into Canada, were now turning their attention away from the French and the Indian threats, and towards the British regulars themselves. These militia companies had spent years fighting off threats. They knew the drill of how to quickly organize, something that they would now utilize against the British. Thomas Gage was wrong. Civil government was not breaking down. Rather, independence was taking hold. Next time, we are going to march forward from the end of the Continental Congress and look at the response to the Congress's decisions, both internally and back in London. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as everybody reacts to a coming boycott. <laughs>